Hello listeners, welcome to IT Guy Who Lifts podcast. I'm your host, Palash Gupta, Diploma in Nutrition and Fitness Sciences from INFS India and Bachelor's in Sports and Exercise Science from Lopuro University, UK. The goal of this podcast is to understand science and science-based tools with the help of industry experts so that we can further optimize our training and nutrition program. With that in mind, let's jump right into today's podcast. Hello listeners, today we have with us the man, the myth, the legend who resides on the top of Black Ivory Tower owned by this shady organization known as Renaissance Periodization, whose sole Uh, You can say objective or goal is to engulf this entire earth with a thin layer of darkness and to defeat a small group of hobbit known as 3DMJ. So, (laughs) (laughs) So with all jokes apart, Dr. Mike, I'm really glad to have you on this podcast and I've been looking forward to having you on this podcast for so long and the dream is finally true and you are here. So before I pass the bit in towards you, Dr. Mike, uh, I have few disclaimers to put out. And the first one states that on this uh, podcast, I request my guest to give the longest possible, uh, you can say, introduction that they have ever given. Because I want to know all the life events which unfolded in front of our guest, which made them lead down this path and eventually become the person that they are today. So with that in mind, Dr. Mike... Uh, the B10 is at your court and the floor is all yours. Well, thank you so much. So I'll try to give a not overly long and boring introduction. But um, so my name is Michael Alexandrovich Isratel. I'm originally from Moscow, Russia. I moved to the United States with my family or my family moved me uh, when I was seven years old. And I grew up around the, the Detroit area in the United States in the state of Michigan. And I like wrestled in high school and stuff like that. And I started to really like fitness. So when I went to college, I bounced around for a while and then eventually got an undergraduate degree in movement science, which is a subset of kinesiology. I didn't think I knew enough. So I got a master's degree in strength and conditioning and exercise science from Appalachian State University, which is another university in the United States. And there I got to work with football players and a bunch of different athletes. I got to do research in the lab. That was really cool. And during that whole time, I was already competitively powerlifting. And then I went to go as a personal trainer. I worked as a personal trainer in New York City for a year. And that was really cool, but I still didn't think I knew enough. So I went and got my PhD at East Tennessee State University. And uh, that was really cool. And I learned a ton that PhD is in sport physiology and performance. So it's in sports science. Basically, the way to think of that is it's the, I got a PhD in the ability to take good athletes and make them better. And maybe not practically, but at least theoretically. And then so I've had an opportunity to be a sports scientist and strength conditioning coach for a bunch of different teams. Division one soccer, volleyball, a bunch of different stuff. And then uh, after my PhD, I became a professor around that same time when I defended my dissertation. Actually, a week after I defended my dissertation, I um, did my first bodybuilding show. And uh, after that, I began to compete in bodybuilding 
pretty regularly, though, you know, once every few years. My recently, my last show went very well for me. I took second place in the Masters uh, USAs at the Super Heavies, which is kind of cool. Um, and uh, during that time when I was on my PhD, I actually co-founded a company called Renaissance Periodization. We had a few uh, hundred training clients, and then we sort of got a little tired of describing to clients why we did what we did nutritionally. So we wrote our first uh, diet principles book, The Renaissance Diet, and uh, that went really well. Then we started making diet templates. Then we made a diet app. Now we have a bunch of digital products and a bunch of coaches and a bunch of forums and all this other good stuff. And I'm still a professor. Somehow, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld convinced me. And so I teach under Dr. Brad Schoenfeld and his master's of uh, sports science or exercise science uh, program and some strength conditioning. And so I teach a course for him called basically something like advanced training methods for strength and, and muscle size, strength hypertrophy. And I, I still do Renaissance periodization. I'm um, uh, doing a lot of YouTube content. So I consider myself an actor, really. Like, you know, like the Bollywood great actors. I think I'm, uh, you know, that those are my heroes. But in any case, uh, there's my slightly prolonged life story. Uh, what do you think? Decent? Awesome. Like, top of the chart. You nailed it, <laughs> Dr. Mike. And on the similar... <laughs> On the similar tangent, because I've heard a lot of uh, your podcasts and I truly attest that you have a lot of wisdom to share, but I uh, really got inspired by the thinking that you carry uh, in terms of economist or you can say in terms of psychology or like uh, in terms of that perspective, because you did your bachelor's, master's and PhD in sports and exercise science. So how did that tangent uh, came across? Like where did you acquire all these like general reasoning capabilities and was it just a serendipitous events that uh, kept on happening with you or like you had some sort of a goal in mind uh, that's a sport and exercise science yes that is the part and parcel but i am also get uh, getting amused by or i want to get deep skin deep into the psychological part as well like behavioral economics and psychology mm mm-hmm. well so um I, I was drawn to psychology in part because uh, I guess at the beginning I had um, attention deficit disorder growing up and that made me very, very bad at school. And I knew I wasn't supposed to be bad at school. My parents made it pretty clear that, that you know, if you had one thing to, to do as a kid, it was to be good at school. And then eventually I got medicated for it. Medication changed my life completely. I'm no longer on the medication because my brain ended up maturing. Uh, so where I don't need the medication, but I was seeing a child psychologist for, to, you know, in order to get the medication originally and actually be diagnosed with ADD because I never knew what that was. And I started a, a pretty long journey, a lifelong journey of introspection, uh, meditation, and uh, the study of psychology at various levels because I kind of wanted to understand what was going up, going on in the mind. As, um, when you're, when you're born with, uh, I guess I, I don't know if it's called learning disability or something. Your brain doesn't work 100%. You don't take it for granted. And you realize that your brain is a very potentially sharp, and powerful arsenal or potentially something that can be wasted. And because I didn't take it for granted because I was already messed up to begin with, as soon as my brain got to working pretty well, I tried to make it work better. So, um, you know, that took me down that path. And then I'm, I, I think the other thing, so, so that explains some of the psychology. Another thing that explains my uh, decent knowledge of psychology and sociology is um, I used to teach courses that were actually um, relevant 
in the exercise science field. So I've, I've, te I've taught uh, several behavior change courses at the university level when I was at Temple University in Philadelphia. And that required me to know quite a bit of psychology, especially about behavior change. And another thing that I think taught me a lot about psych and, and sociology is, particularly in fitness, actually, in a lot of other endeavors, but it particularly struck me in fitness that um, there are so many people out there that comment on why certain people can and do achieve fitness goals, and yes. some people can't, don't and seemingly can't. And a lot of the people commenting on why, especially psychologically, come from one of two uh on average, invalid perspectives. The first perspective, and this is pretty typical in the United States, there are two overrepresented groups for how people think people relate to their fitness journey. One is the people on the political left wing um, that can't bring themselves to blame a single individual for their own actions. Like if they watch someone look at a donut on the plate, look at their diet, and they go, eh, who cares, and just eat the donut, they'd be like, well, these are sociocultural factors. It's not their fault. And at some point, you got to question, what is a person's fault? You know, if someone shoots an old lady in the street, they'd be like, well, it's not his fault. Like, okay, but that's not really a powerful explanatory mechanism anymore. When that person tells you it's 100% their fault and you disagree even with them, it starts to be tough. So it's very difficult to figure out, I suppose, except um, the difficulties of human psychology, except the fact that a lot of us are pretty flawed, that human motivation yeah. is not perfect, that sometimes people sabotage themselves. That got my interest really peaked because of what I saw in personal training, what I saw in the research literature about motivation and uh, who's at fault for what was very different than the folks who wanted everything to be politically correct. The other side you see a lot in the United States, especially and a lot around the world comes more from the political right. And these are folks that basically are like, it's all willpower. And the only reason people are fat is because they're lazy. It's like, well, you know, don't, yeah. there, don't you think there's some role for genetics some role for socio-cultural factors. Like if, if no one in your community cares about fitness and people make fun of you for trying to get fit, isn't your chance of getting fit like lower than it would be if you had a supportive community? Because, you know, the people on the left exaggerate how much that's effective, but it's still somewhat. And the people on the right are like, no, it's all on you. It's a willpower problem. And, you know, they have a point, but their point doesn't stretch that far. So I had to become pretty adept at psych psychology and sociology because I had to answer these kinds of questions in class to my students, but wasn't it just people aren't trying? I had to really know what's going on. Uh, and then, you know, I've, I have other hobbies. Like I, one of my hobbies is like psychometrics. Um, it's the, the science of the measurement of uh, human psychological ability. And that's just like really interesting stuff. And uh, so I've kept up with that research for a while. And I, I, I like, I'm a big fan of economics and politics and stuff. I just read that in my spare time because I'm a nerd and I don't have any friends. Uh, the textbooks always like to hang out. They never say no. Brilliant, brilliant. Like, uh, it, it shows that uh, when we are trying to handle a human, yeah, there is obviously a physiology attached to it, but oftentimes even coaches forget that there is a psychology attached to it as well. Like, that particular human is carrying a brain. Like, it's not an input-output machine. You just cannot give them a, a particular set of program, whether it's nutritional or training-wise, and you can't expect them to execute it to the T, right? It's a human. It's like they have their own way of thinking and uh, they have their own experiences of uh, doing certain things in a certain way. And that's how, like, uh, a good coach becomes a better coach the moment he grabs this psychological aspect. Like, physiological aspect, yeah, you can read it in your books and everything, but psychological aspect, take a lot of time a lot of wisdom to grasp like, correct me if i'm wrong no absolutely correct and it's all about meeting people where they are not where you want them to be 
You know, you say, yes. oh, man, if this person could just follow instructions, well, that's fun in pretend land where you could just magically change a person, but you can't. So you say, okay, how much bandwidth does this person have? What motivates this person? What demotivates them? Can I talk to them in such a way, change something about their program that makes the whole situation more palatable, more likely to be taken up by their psychology to actually execute it? That's the difference between working in hypothesis and working in real world with actual humans. You know, real clients are real clients are late to training. Sometimes they don't show up to training. Sometimes they cheat on their diets and you can tell them, well, you're doing it bad. And they'll go, I know. And then they just look at you and you're like, ah, crap, I guess you're still paying me to get you in better shape. So working with imperfect systems is, uh, is a part of, you know, it's a part of how you do things. And that, that's, that's actually a rule everywhere in the world. You know, there's no, people get frustrated as coaches, as personal trainers, and maybe some of your listeners can relate to this. They get frustrated that their clients are imperfect or that their clients cheat on their diets or the clients, you know, don't do X, Y, Z. Thing is, I'm actually just not aware of any industry in which you can expect perfection. Like imagine, imagine being in an industry which relies heavily on microchips and then all of a sudden you just have a microchip shortage occur and like, I don't know, that sucks and you have to adapt. And that's the thing with personal training. If you can figure out someone's psychology to a good enough level to actually help them the most, you become a very good coach and you can help people yeah. who otherwise wouldn't be helped. They, you know, can you imagine one of your friends gets in really good shape and you know for a fact that she's just not that motivated of a person and she's never been in fitness and all of a sudden she's in good shape and you're like, oh my God, who's your coach? Because if, if your coach coaches me, I'll get in incredible shape because I always did a better job. Then that sort of thing makes you a very successful coach. And at the end, it's all about helping people, even if sometimes those people, you know, are imperfect, which, which is again, always the case in every single industry. Hundred percent. That's the deal with the devil that we are making as a coach and as a, as a you can say, instructor, right? Uh, because that's what gives us the kick. That's what suits our soul. Because if everything started falling into its own place, then there would be no need for coaches. Like they, a lot of clients, once they get educated enough, when they understand the process, like whether calories in versus calories out of uh, things like uh, specificity, overload, and fatigue management, they don't require you anymore. But they still stick to you. Why? Because they have they. It's human tendency. It's the affectionation of coach and client relationship, which they are like craving for at the end of the day. No AI can replace it, right? 100%. The AI that will replace it is going to be human-grade AI, and that will be a true miracle because then we'll all live in paradise with a thousand servants for $5.99 a month or some subscription AI service. That'd be <laughs> awesome. But, you know, for now, it's, it's yeah, it's down to the human element. And you can, as a coach, even leverage AI. You can use some apps that help with the decision-making process. But then at the end of the day, 100%. you have to talk like a human being to your clients. And if you pride yourself on not talking like you, because some coaches are like, I'm hardcore. I don't do that wussy psychology stuff. I don't talk to my clients. Like, well, you know, the generation of apps coming next that do pretty good AI, uh, they also don't talk to the client and they're way cheaper than you. So good luck. And if you talk to your clients, if you meet them where they are, then you can really and at the end of the day, it's you can just solve people's problems better and help people. Because if you don't like helping people, there are other career opportunities you can have that are not personal coaching and you'd probably like better. 100%. Brilliantly said and put uh, really, really like that entire piece. So with that in mind, before we deep dive into today's agenda, Dr. Mike, since you have gone through the entire hierarchy of evidences, like you did your bachelor's, master's and PhD, and nowadays we have seen that a lot of people are, you can say, uh, 
hopping over this bandwagon of evidence-based practice, whether it comes in terms of nutrition or you can say in terms of training. So in your terms, across all this time where you've been learning not only practical, uh, like theoretical, uh, theoretically or even uh, practically because you have a huge set of experience, huge set of experience and along with the uh, practical and theoretical knowledge. What does evidence-based practice means to you? That's a good question. I've answered this question in a few slightly different ways over the years, but I think evidence-based practice is just that evidence-based. And so there's a couple of different types of evidence used to base your practice. Usually people only think of one, and that's like cited PubMed studies from the last five years on a specific topic. But that's not so helpful if you don't know the basic anatomy and physiology and exercise science behind a problem. So I'd say the core of evidence-based practice is if, whether you go to school or not, you can learn anatomy, exercise science, exercise physiology, biomechanics, sport physiology, uh, muscle contraction modalities, cardiorespiratory fitness, all this other stuff. That basic knowledge is, of course, evidence-based because it's written in textbooks and those are all re referenced with comprehensive literature reviews. So that's really the core because if you don't know how to contextualize evidence, you won't be able to apply that evidence to training. You know, for example, if you have uh, some, you know, occlusion literature on uh, occluding and hypertrophy, if you don't understand the basic mechanisms involved, you can't even tell if you're occluding properly. Because if yeah. you're, let's say, not tying the band tight enough and not feeling the metabolite sequestration, if you didn't know what metabolite sequestration is and how it's supposed to feel, you just try to study an occlusion training, you could be doing it wrong for months and just have no idea and say, well, I'm evidence-based. Well, not really, because you have to have a prerequisite knowledge to make a lot of sense or the most sense of most of these studies. So first is learn, learn the core basics. Second after that is be up to date on the most recent literature on the pertinent topics. And that's not that hard to do, especially if you subscribe to something like the Weightology Review that James Krieger publishes. It keeps you up to date. The, the, the folks uh, at MASS, uh, M-A-S-S, yes. they're publishing uh, great volumes of literature. The Stronger by Science folks stay really on top of literature. Um, and that's all really good stuff. And if you can stay in that, kind of the, th the third part, uh, maybe third and fourth part. So the first part's the basic. Second is literature. The third part is um, reading about or directly experiencing work with lots of folks yourself. So an evidence-based practitioner has to have a grounding in reality. You know, you can say, well, sets of five are better than sets of 10 for this X, Y, Z. But if you've never seen it play out in real life, you could be yeah. in a variety of illusions. For example, you can say, well, you know, uh, sets of five grow muscle in the literature just as well as sets of 15. So we should just, if, if I have a client who's trying to get big and strong, I can just do sets of five and they'll get just as big as anyone else. Well, if that client's already very strong, sets of five beat up your joints and connective tissues like sets of 15 can't. And it's nothing you would see in the literature because that hasn't been studied on elite athletes yet or people that are strong. But if you've been around those folks, even if you haven't coached them yourself, if you've just heard stories from other coaches, you'll start to realize, well, actually, if you're really strong, sets of five are not really a a thing you can do for very long to put on muscle size because the volume is necessary, the number of sets of five you'd have to do would really mess up your joints and just cut your mesocycle short. So there has to be that experience either by proxy with lots of people, reading about what um, high-ranking coaches say, reading about what, client, or what trainers who have lots of experience with clients say, 
And then the other one is, of course, working with the same under the same category is working with your own clients. If you work with 10 clients, you know some things that you didn't know if you worked with zero. If you work with yeah. 100 clients, you really start to know some things. A thousand clients, you start to really understand a bunch of the different variations and differences. It's easy to also think this is how you squat, for example. You grab the bar here and you put your feet here. And with 10 clients, you might have one aberrant client. That, that doesn't work for them, but you're like, ah, he's kind of a uh, piece of crap and he's lazy. And maybe he's just like, I don't know. He's just, some people aren't meant to exercise. But if you have a thousand clients, it turns out a hundred of them, maybe 150 don't squat like that. And you've had so many of them that you're like, well, it's clearly not just aberrant. I need to figure out how to adjust the squat. You tell them, no, no, put your grip here, put your feet here. And it works. And all of a sudden you only have five clients out of a thousand that really just can't squat. And the rest of them, you're like, Ooh, there's diff there's, there's a, uh, a universe of squat techniques that I have to change a little bit for the individual. And you, you could have read that somewhere, but you really know it if you experienced it. And lastly, uh, I would say like the fourth tier of evidence-based practice is experimenting on yourself. You have to train hard and you have to apply the things you're reading. I, I you know, I, I have, uh, policy where if I'm writing programs, I never write programs that the principles of which were not tested by myself on myself. I'm not going to be like, oh yeah, I do this exercise. And I'm like, well, what is it? I'm like, well, I've never tried it. Hopefully it works for you. So that's not a good idea. So basically evidence-based practice is knowing the fundamental basics of exercise science, then keeping up to date with the literature, then being availed to what a lot of other people are doing and how they're responding. And then the last fourth piece is making sure that you've tried all these fundamental things on yourself and you have a personal understanding of how uh, exercise works because you've done it for a long time, how dieting works because you've done it for a long time. And that doesn't even mean the coach needs to be in shape. It just means they need to be in better shape than when they started by applying rigorously everything. Because, like, how can you coach clients and tell them to do stuff you've never done? Can you imagine, you know, you've never done a diet longer than four weeks, but you're telling your client, hey, do this 12-week diet. And they're like, I'm really hungry. And you're like, wow, well, you shouldn't be that hungry. But how do you know? You've never tried a long diet. Try a long diet. You're like, oh, holy crap. I really can't tell. So to me, combining all those four things in a good faith effort and learning from your mistakes is the essence of evidence-based practice. And a lot of people think evidence-based practice is like, if you're in an online debate, how many studies, PubMed studies can you link? That's not what that is. So that's my take on the matter. Brilliant. Again, uh, really, really brilliant set piece. And you're this example that you have to walk the walk in order to talk the talk, right? So a lot of coaches, like uh, they, they, they label themselves as a contest prep coach, but they have never done a contest prep themselves. And when their client says that their dick is not getting hard and they are having no boner six months in a long, deep deficit, they'll be like, oh, it doesn't happen because they have never walked the walk in the first place. You can be a good coach, definitely, by reading the textbook, by reading the PubMed and sci-fi. But in order to become a better coach, you have to walk the walk at some point of time, right? You have to understand what this process actually means. Like when your client is coming up with that issue, if you have never experienced it yourself, you won't be able to provide a really, really good solution. You might be able to provide some sort of a walk around, but it's still a walk around. Like uh, there is no quote unquote good solution if you have never experienced it by yourself, right? Yeah, that's a great point. And the other thing is what really got me extra motivated to try all the stuff myself i was already in the lifestyle but another good reason to do this is you may be able to get away with coaching someone in a process you've never done before you might get it right 
And I have gotten it right before coaching people. I didn't really know exactly what was involved. I just got lucky because they had good genetics. But that should leave you with a reservation of thoughts of saying, gee, and I felt like I just got lucky. Yeah. Um, maybe I don't want to get lucky anymore. Maybe next time I coach someone, I want to really know what's going on. And uh, that motivated me to continue to be involved at a much greater level than I had to be. And then I learned so much stuff that eventually I was really confident working with a bunch of people and I could say, oh, this, I know how to solve this. I know how to solve versus, you know, hoping that you know enough, yeah. which can suck. And the thing is, if you don't want to be involved in the lifestyle, at least for some length of time, you say, well, I don't want to have to do contest prep. I just want to coach people to contest prep. I don't know. And that's kind of the cost you have to pay. And if yeah. you don't want to do contest prep, how are you going to motivate other people, can you imagine halfway through contest prep, your client's like, man, I'm really struggling with motivation of why I'm doing this. And you're like, well, well, I don't even do it. I would never do it because I hate it. So good luck. Maybe you can't say something like that. You know, in order to lead people into the fires of hell, you probably have to have gone through the fires of hell a few times. And then you kind of know the best path. 100%. And on the similar tangent, Red, a lot of evidence-based practitioners no longer stay evidence-based the moment science starts challenging their biases, right? As long as science is producing the results in favor of their biases, they are chanting this uh, rhythm, right? A hymn of the evidence-based practice. But the moment evidence start uh, like uh, presenting against their biases, they'll be like, yeah, it's just one study, that's just two studies, that's just 10 studies. Like, Really, 10 studies, you are willing to neglect 10 studies and you are not willing to uh, like correct your bias, then you are not uh, like eligible to label yourself as evidence-based, right? That's a great point. One of my sort of heroes in the evidence-based community with regard to changing mindset is Brad Schoenfeld. Brad Schoenfeld has done a lot of the core work in hypertrophy research. And a lot of that core work has refuted his own personal hypotheses yeah. that he publicly yeah. held prior to his own research disproving. I mean, I remember talking to Brad personally. He and I both thought that in almost every condition, 10 to 20 sets per week was going to maximize hypertrophy. And we didn't really think there were going to be any exceptions to that that were mounting, you know, a few studies in. And then Brad actually did... Uh, a, a restudy of a Brazilian paper where they came to some very strange conclusions, like 40 sets is better than 20. And he, he did a, a redo of that study and he got the same result. And then yeah. another few studies confirmed that result. And Brad had to write this manuscript like, Hey, I was wrong. And actually looks like some cases you could do a lot more volume and benefit. And he was actually accused by a few people of plagiarizing the work or not plagiarizing, um, you know, like manufacturing the data and all this other stuff, which by the way, like if you accuse someone of that, you have to have some actual evidence for it. It's not just something yeah. you throw around and they never had that. But even the accusation is strange. It's like, um, it's like accusing a president of rigging his own election that he lost. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, okay, <laughs> gee, he really just did a bad job or did he try to rig it so that he lost, you know, is that even a crime? So it's, it's uh, very cool to me to see when Brad Schoenfeld, who has his name literally on all these ideas can change his mind with uh, as science updates. That really gives me hope that the rest of us have at least a chance of doing it too. And, you know, I've uh, recently been in, in a situation or am where, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, I have a, a offshoot uh, subsidiary company of RP called team full ROM, you know, for full range of motion. We have the shirts, we have the, the, 
forum and everything that people can join. And it's, it's you know, like the team forum is like, it's tongue in cheek. It's a joking kind of thing. But, um, you know, recently there have been a few convincing studies that show that partial range reps yeah. in the stretched position may actually be superior in some cases to full range. And people have asked me, hey, what do you think about that? Well, I do need a few more confirmatory studies in order to really start to shift my mind. But I will tell already people should be experimenting with this if they'd like in their own training environment and seeing if the stimulus to fatigue ratio proxies, how much pump and burn and tension occur, how much soreness occurs, how little fatigue occurs. They should be trying some deep partials already in their training and seeing if they work. Because if they work, that confirms the research. And then, yeah, there's team full ROM is not a full range of motion is not a dogma. It's just on average the best guess of how to train yeah. best for now. But if in the few years or in a year it becomes obvious that partial range, um, you know, deep stretch partials are superior in some or even all cases to full range of motion, hey, I'll be the guy trying to figure out how to do those best and track them and apply them. The funny thing is, is that almost nobody does them currently or ever has because they're the painful, humbling range of motion that yeah. you can't use a lot of weight with. <laughs> so a lot of people are like, should I use partials? Like, yeah. From the bottom of the squat, halfway up and back down, they're like, but I can only use like 50 kilos. Like, mm -hmm. it's going to hurt and it's going to suck and you're going to look weak. And they're like, nah, I'll go full range of motion or I'll just do partials from the top half so I can lift 150 kilos. But yeah, no matter what our ego says, no matter what ideas we've had before, it's a really, really good idea. To just because because at the end of the day, what is it that you want out of this as an evidence based practitioner? Me, I just have really one thing I want. I want to be correct. I don't like holding yeah. views about the world that are wrong. And if I can be correct, then I don't care. Like I used to be wrong. Okay, so I did. So now I'm not wrong anymore. Great. Like uh, there's nothing wrong. Truth. That's crazy. So. If you want to be correct, you have to be open to updating your views so that on average, over time, you become more and more correct. And if you guessed correctly about stuff, hey, that's nice. But if you didn't, good time to start changing your position so that you don't, you know, because what do you get if you stick to your guns and when obviously the truth is different, you still stay, no, no, this is how it is. I don't understand what you get from that. Embarrassed consistently. And as the evidence mounts, you get more and more embarrassed and you get more and more defensive. But you don't even help your clients that way because, geez, don't you yeah. work with clients? Don't you prescribe your client stuff? Don't you want them to have the best options? 100%. Again, totally agreed with all the points that you laid out. And uh, on a similar tangent, you can say uh, on the flip side of the coin, when do people should correct their bias? Like a lot of people say, okay, I only correct my biases when I see some sort of a systematic review or meta-analysis. And on the flip off of the flip side of the coin, a lot of people started chanting me again, the evidence-based bandwagon. The moment they see one single study, uh, like quoting statistically significant results because they were married to the thought or the married to that particular bias. So a brief framework where you can guide the listeners, okay, what will be the best option, like best uh, route of action, which uh, can guide them on when to change their biases or when to change their practice once uh, evidence has been presented to them. Yeah. So my best answer is that it doesn't have to be a single cutoff line. It's actually a spectrum. So when one study comes out that goes against what people thought was the case, a good response to it is, oh, well, that's really interesting. You don't say, oh, that's probably wrong and it's stupid. You say, oh, but it's yeah. interesting if true. 
if a couple of studies come out starting to confirm that this new method or new way is maybe more likely the truth, then you can say, wow, you know, that's actually very interesting. And I would go and maybe try what the kind of the background here is, try those conclusions out in your own training or your own diet. Like, let's say there are a couple of studies that come out that show that much more protein is a good idea than we thought. So, okay, after one study, you know, one weird study comes out about everything once a year, and you don't want to start trying everything one study shows, so you could just waste a lot of your time. Two or three studies, I would say, hey, look, if you're curious, and if you think there's some physiological rationale, and these are just aberrant studies, then you try it. Try it and see what happens, because if you try this way higher protein, and after three or four months or half a year, you honestly can't say anything's different. You say, well, you know... Uh, it's expensive to eat this much protein. I'm going to go back to eating a normal amount of protein. I'm going to wait for more evidence to accumulate. And then the next few studies could say, actually, enough protein um, is totally had from smaller levels. And you're like, oh, thank God I didn't just keep doing this stupid high-protein diet forever. Or the next several studies say, well, actually, if you eat your food like this, or not for all people, but for this group, high-protein is better, then you can start to say, wow, that really looks very interesting. I'm going to try it again, but in a more specific manner. So if you see hints from the research literature... Try them in your own training, in your own practice, and if they seem to work better than average, then just hold on to them and keep keep them in the mix. Try the other stuff too. Try this new thing. See which one does better on average. If they both do well, you could do both of them for a long time. If one of them just doesn't seem like it's the best anymore, then you can do it less frequently instead of just stopping it altogether, right? So someone says, "Hey, partial range of motion squats from the bottom to the to the bottom half and and back down are better due to these three studies." than full range of motion squats. Well, you can do like two or three muscle cycles of those squats and then one muscle cycle of full range of motion squats just to see if there's any difference, if you can tell, or just to make sure you're not overly doing the new thing too much. And then after, you know, five to 10 studies come out, we develop a very holistic understanding of the subject, at least a small subject like this. Then we start to have a new consensus developed. And then you say, well, gee, this is the new way we do things. So it's not about like, this is the truth and this isn't. It's all mm -hmm. probabilities, right? And you say, when one study comes out, you say, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe you can try it, but I wouldn't. Two or three studies come out pointing some other direction. You go, well, maybe I'm not going to try it, but I think other people should try it. And they report back and go, dude, you got to try this. This shit really works. But they say, yeah, I can't really tell the difference. And then after that, five to 10 studies, you can say, well, this is a very serious contention. And maybe it's a 50% chance it's true, 50% it's not, or even higher, 70% chance it's true. So I'm going to start to change some of my practices at the margins in my evidence-based practice to at least try this with clients and reflect it. And by the way, two or three studies of something, I might not try that with clients yet. I might just try that on myself with my friends. Um, clients maybe wait for five to 10 studies or, or like very obviously it worked with your clients at two to three. It's like if something, two to three studies, even one study works incredibly well, you should try it again with yourself and with your friends. And if it also works incredibly well, you go, well, shit, the, I should, all my clients, I'm not going to keep this for my clients. It seems to work really well. So in that method, you sort of, uh, let's say you think this is the truth, this hypothesis, that this method we've been using, and the studies keep confirming this as true, and this isn't being supported anymore, where you think the truth is could start here. Notice it's not right there because you're never 100% convinced of anything. It's right next to it. And as this lights up and says, true, 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 and this is like false, 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 you slowly walk down the line to 50-50. I'm not sure. Both seem good. And on all the way to actually, this seems pretty good. It's never, you're not in this camp. You don't just hop into that camp. 
It's all a fine line. You walk it as evidence accumulates, both direct evidence and evidence from actually trying it with people. As that evidence accumulates, you adjust your walk accordingly, and then you find yourself in a new place. And you're always, during that time, in a place of located as your best assessment of the evidence. And, you know, because a lot of things, Palash uh, is actually a very good question. A lot of uh, problems with this is that people, as an evidence-based authority, which, uh, you know, you are for sure, and I am to some extent, um, people want, especially in like Instagram, social media, Facebook, YouTube, they want yes or no hard line answers. What, what's better, hack squat or leg press? And if you say, well, in some circumstances, but in others, some people don't like to hear that stuff. And then if you have a YouTube following or Instagram, if you take a very hard position, simple position, leg press is better, here's three reasons why, then a lot of people will follow you and it's almost like you're a false prophet. They go, wow, this guy's got the truth. And then five years later, when he's led them to nothing but sore knees, they go, ah, crap, I should have never followed that guy. Well, as an evidence-based practitioner, when people ask you, hey, do you have a comment on X, Y, Z? Like I was asked uh, a few times when I thought about polymer cooling. It's when you do a bunch of exercise, then you put your your hands into very cold water, you take them out, and apparently it works really well for endurance. But there was only one real good study confirming that, no others. So what do I think about it? I think it's interesting. But am I going to say, well, it for sure is bullshit because while people want to hear that, I can't say that. Maybe it works well. Is it for sure like awesome and works as well as steroids, which is what one of the articles claimed? Well, geez, that's a little early. You know, for some reason, the Chinese don't do Palmer cooling and they'll take every steroid they can manufacture. You know, it's kind of curious why that they don't do that. So at the end of the day, it's okay to be somewhere in that middle spectrum and say, hey, like, here is my best assessment. And I'm looking forward to more evidence as it comes out so I can change my views. And here's the best thing about that. If your clients know that you're always updating your views, they can make sure that you're always on the cutting edge and you're always giving them the best advice. It's like if you're a computer systems engineer and you don't use any modern operating systems, I don't know, man, I'm probably not going to hire you because like, what the hell? Like you're out of date all the time. But oh, you know, Linux version one was the best. That's the only thing I use. Like, come on, man, there's got to be some better <laughs> stuff. But if you're always flexible and always adapting new platforms to use, then I know that you really just want the best results. And I'm interested in hiring you, whether that be for computer engineering, personal training, it doesn't matter. I want people that are flexible. Another one really quick, and this is kind of pertinent to the political situation. Um, it turns out that at least for some number of weeks, Putin and his invasion of Ukraine uh, was not getting accurate battlefield updates of what was going on. Well, geez, how can you run a war doing that? That's terrible. You know, and he's not doing so well. Russia's losing big time. Meanwhile, Ukraine actively releases intelligence to everyone for free. So they're much more in touch with what's really going on. You don't want to be that person that's like, oh, we've been losing this war for two weeks. That sucks. And you definitely don't want to be that personal trainer or coach with your clients to say, oh, Turns out like this kind of carbohydrate that I've been feeding you actually does make you fatter. I didn't want to read the research literature and change my mind. Sorry. Like that kind of sucks. They pay you money. They pay you money to be your best. So the best thing you can do is stay up to date with literature and be flexible with your ideas about what's going on. Brilliant. Again, 
I think that's the issue with the science. Like people expect science to give them a black and white answer, but science just gives you the shades of gray, right? You have to pick those shades of gray which works best for you. And there is no single shade of gray as well, right? A lot of clients can maybe like one point six gram per kg of body weight for some. protein intake maybe upwards of 4.4 like jose antonio have did that study 4.4 so geez it's uh, like big shades of gray and that's a good thing to be honest like it give it provides us with such a great flexibility because otherwise uh like achieving a good physique would could have been a distant dream for people who are super busy in their life right which is why uh, in brad shortfield so like max muscle plan he literally have 3 days up per week max muscle hypertrophy plan because science gives you the uh, like uh, this kind of a flexibility even if you are having just 40 hours uh, 40 minutes per day for like twice a week you can still achieve such a great physique that you will be astonished maybe i if you will be questioning yourself that if you if uh, like possibly you could have like invested more time you could have gotten more out of it right so this is such a great thing to think about it oh yeah what you're saying is is super common i think a lot of people who don't even hire coaches or personal trainers actually just think that fitness and being very fit is something that professional fitness people exclusively yeah. have a per a purview of like they see someone in shape and actually my uh one of my friends um he's uh, from uh, Azerbaijan which is uh, close to Russia it's an Asian country and you know very old school mentality and a lot of his parents and relatives and, and stuff and older folks when he got in shape for the first time like much better he lost a ton of weight got really lean got muscular one of them was like oh what have you been doing and he's like well you know, i've been working out a couple times a week and cleaning up my diet and one of the people responded with well i have a day job so i can't do stuff like that well he's had a day job that entire time they just assumed he was now professionally into fitness which is like come on so one of the great things about being flexible is understanding that look can you win the mr olympia contest training twice a week no can you lose 10 kilos of body fat and look 50 times better and feel 100 times better probably yeah. and then someone evidence based doesn't have to do this all or nothing stuff which a lot of people bring in they say well if i'm not going to train 2 hours a day for 6 days a week it's not worth it that's not true at all it's like saying well if i can't buy a lamborghini i'm not going to get a car like there's <laughs> other cars that will better way better than not having a car so totally totally like it gives us so much flexibility that people has have like lost the sight of what true evidence based or like what science is there for like science is there for for your own health for your own like longevity and everything so you have to use it at some point otherwise you will be like uh, just prolonging your agony and at the end of the day when you'll be like tired and old you'll be like i better have like tried that shit at least for once like there might might have been something good if like i could have transformed lived my uh, life in a better way like you will be ending your life with nothing but a remorse at the end of the day right i remember seeing a client who was a very successful corporate lawyer in New York. She wasn't my client. She was a client of another trainer at a, a gym in New York City. And she was in her 60s and she was ultra super powerful lawyer. She was unbelievable. Made tons and tons of money. And I watched her have trouble doing five sit to stands off of an above parallel box. Like her fifth rep was wobbly with no weight, Polish, no weight. 
that means that for her to sit out of a chair in a legal meeting takes like is the equivalent of what for you would be like a four RM squat. Like do one rep of the four RM every time you get out of a car, every time you get out of your bed. She was that weak. And it's because she neglected her physical body for 60 years. And then finally she was like, I got to go to a trainer and the trainer helped her a ton and she got so much out of it. But maybe in the back of her head, she was thinking, fuck, why didn't I do this sooner? Um, it's a big deal. 100%. And that shows like there are two types of thinking. Like uh, first one is frequentist approach and second one is like Bayesian approach. So I started my like this evidence-based practice with keeping frequentist approach in mind. And the more I like marched upon this journey of evidence-based practice, like the most I started learning and experimenting, I the amount of time that I have corrected my bias, I feel like I'm no longer that person, that palash which started this journey, right? You at some point you ascend to the new version of yourself, which you once hated because you were married to so many thoughts and one by one, like they started getting shattered. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, bro, split is everything. You have to eat just protein and all. Like everything, it's almost like that. The science is purposefully snatching your identity in the beginning, which you started uh, learning and more. And if you are not willing to like open to learning, it's a, it's a, it's a like opportunity loss, a big time opportunity loss where you could have like gained a lot out of it. Like the this version of Palash, if ten years back version of plus he's this version of plus he would be really really proud that you kept on learning you kept on correcting your biases and you had some sort of a like patient voice uh, up, uh, update or approach what are your thoughts on that like which approach you like and on top of that a brief uh, you can say understanding of what is a frequentist approach or what is a patient approach for our listeners if you can you know i don't tend to to require making those distinctions. I think that the process of executing logical streams of action and thought encompasses like at least 10 different philosophical and epistemological approaches. And it requires the use of all of them intelligently at the same time. And when people label themselves, well, I'm a this or I'm a that, I'm an empiricist, I'm a theorist, I'm a rationalist, you don't have to do any of that. You just have to use uh, your best understanding. And a lot of that doesn't even come. You have to be intelligent and educated to understand how to use logical tools. But by far the biggest impediment is ego and an attachment yeah. to an earlier version of you having been correct about something. So, for example, let's say that you are really an empiricist. And you say, well, you know, unless I see evidence for it, I, it's not a thing. Um, now, hold on a sec. You have to understand, if you back up, that the universe exists whether or not you're measuring it. Okay, Like if a star blows up in another constellation, we don't have to measure it for it to blow up. That's, if you think that's the case, you're a subjectivist. This, your whole world doesn't make sense. It's full of nonsense. So we know that the universe does stuff that we can't measure. On the other hand, if we've measured something, we know much more about it than if we have to theorize about it. So my approach here is really simple. If there are no direct studies on something, I'm perfectly comfortable using theoretical inference until and unless I receive actual evidence of what's going on. And then theoretical influence doesn't go away. Evidence is all we have, empirical evidence. 
one has to confirm the other and the theory changes a little as evidence comes in and all of a sudden you have this network of understanding that the theory is now better or the model you're using gets upgraded to theory because it's based on an interconnected web of well-supported facts hypotheses that have been proven true and whether you use a frequentist approach in your analysis of what's going on whether you use a bayesian approach there are about 15 other approaches we could list that are you know less integrated or less popular you have to use all approaches in order to some problems uh, are better for one approach better for the other approach but almost all problems require a synthesis of approaches and the only real thing you need is intellectual honesty and to drop your ego and you know if you like a certain approach and it gives you the information you need and you think oh i'm correct try another approach and see if it says something different and really be honest which one of these is likely to lead us to be true um there's also just just to mention something there is a logical fallacy called the mcnamara yeah. fallacy which is like if we can't measure it it doesn't exist so um there was a situation um i don't know how politically correct this is i suppose it's all out there I'm not going to name names because we're, we've all been wrong before. I'm, I've been wrong a bunch. I'll be wrong in the future. But a few folks were saying, well, listen, you know, uh, growth hormone is not something that you should be using as an athlete, even if it's legal in your country to use, because here are these studies that show that it doesn't work. It doesn't add muscle mass. It doesn't improve athletic performance. But the problem is all those studies are on like sick people or regular old people, and they give them essentially replacement dosages. High dose growth hormone, and most bodybuilders have used growth hormone can tell you, yeah, replacement doesn't do anything. It just replaces your old growth hormone, yeah. nothing changes. But if you prolong use with, in concert with other uh, drugs and supplements, and in the context of resistance training, because by the way, none of these people are resistance trained in most of these studies, it's crazy, right? Then it's a huge facilitator and it makes your results super better. But if you have apply the McNamara fallacy, you say, well, we've measured and it's not there. So it's not there. It can't be there. But you didn't do the measurement properly and you didn't measure the whole universe of possibilities. You just measured one. So you're literally intentionally blind to the reality. Now, if you remember, here's a really good illustration of evidence-based practice. We have theory, which says growth hormone should help you get more jacked. We have empirical evidence, which says it's not, but it's limited. We go to personal experience and the experience of other people. When you talk to athletes at the, let's say the Olympia competition for bodybuilding, they're using massive doses of growth hormone. It's highly inconvenient. It has tons of side effects. It also costs an unbelievable amount of money. You think all those people are throwing away their money for nothing? I was actually in a forum once on Facebook where a couple, it was a bunch of bros that just use drugs and a, a few pros, high level pros. And one guy like started a thread that was like growth hormone is a super overpriced fat burner. That's what he called it, overpriced fat burner. And he was like, right, guys? And he asked the IFB pros, and they were all like, no, it's much more than that. And he was like, ah, crap. You know, so if those guys say that, maybe you're wrong, and maybe yeah, just an I empirical think, approach uh, isn't good I'm, enough. I'm aware of that. I'm like, uh, sorry to cut you off. Like, I think he no, asked, like, he tagged uh, Ian Valerius, right? Ian. Yes. Then, uh, yeah. Right. You're aware of that actual conversation. Yeah, That's exactly. brilliant. <laughs> so Ian's he like, said, "Well, go ahead. Go ahead." He said, "Yeah." He said, "Like, no, it works." Then you like, works. He the like <laughs> it was like a uh, like a statement of laughter. It became like that, and the entire conversation was so funny. 
it was amazing because this guy was like, well, yeah, you know, I can rationalize why I don't use growth hormone. And Ian's like, Mm-mm, that's not going to work. And then the guy was like, well, what about orals? Like, can't you just take orals? And he's like, I don't take orals in my off season. Yeah. And the guy was like, geez, I just have nothing left to say. <laughs> so, which is, you know, and, and in all fairness, that guy had a hypothesis and he was, he was very upfront about his statement of what he thought he was seemingly, you know, his hypothesis met with some resistance. Now, I mean, I don't know that guy. I forgot what the guy's name was, but hopefully what he did was he went, yeah, you know, the best guys say it works. I Maybe I can ask them some follow-up questions in private. Maybe I can do some more research and reading, and maybe I can find out, oh, if you apply it like this, it works. But look, there's a chance that Ian Valliere and all those other guys are wrong. Absolutely. People get up and all uh, There's tons of fads that people do that are wrong and stupid, but... Uh, you know, I happen to know from plenty of personal experience and, of course, in communicating with lots of coaches that coach pharmacology that, like, no, growth hormones, unbelievable, has all these crazy side effects, super bad for you, but also has all these crazy beneficial effects. And, like, you can't just rely on one arm of the evidence-based pyramid. You can't just rely on one of the approaches of statistics or understanding the world. You have to have a good faith approach to everything. It's like I asked him, about it, what's more important, theoretical physics or experimental physics? Well, it's both. <laughs> and if you say it's one or the other, geez, you know, you might be wrong a lot. And that would suck. Yeah. So because we tend to forget, especially these like uh, evidence-based practitioners, anecdotal evidences and case reports are still a part of the hierarchy of evidences, right? They are still a part of the hierarchy. And anecdotal evidence, yeah, it is just anecdotes, but still they hold some sort of a weight in terms of uh, part of the hierarchy of evidences, right? So that is super, super correct and a super important point that I think, um, again, it's people who get into shortcuts get into this problem. What is the shortcut that we want to have ideally as evidence-based practitioners and people who like science? Here's the shortcut. If you have an anecdote, I don't care. That's anecdotal data. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to look at it. I don't have to consider it. Anything that's not in a meta-analysis, I don't care about. Well, you know, that would be cool if you could just do that. But in reality, anecdote can be one of two things. Just statistical noise or flat out wrong, highly likely, or a hint at the actual likely truth that yeah. all reveals a deeper ultrastructure than what you were aware of. And every single discovery begins as anecdote. Anecdote, yes. 100%. And that is something that you have to understand and that means that you treat anecdote exactly as it should be treated with uh, a, a bit of distance to say, look, I'm not committing to anything that's anecdote. But at the same time, if a few folks start to think things anecdotally and based anecdotal experience and try to derive some ideas, the worst you could say is, oh, but that's interesting. I wonder if it goes somewhere. You start with anecdote, you start applying it to yourself or to others, it starts to work really well. And you go, oh, holy shit. And if you're in touch with scientists or you read the literature, a couple of years later, research comes out. Here's a really um, a good example. We knew for a long time in practice, the exercises that were taken close to failure for high reps gave you a crazy burn. And then if you did them repeatedly, you get quite muscular, similarly muscular to if you went super heavy and never felt the burn. And so people were saying, well, you know, what is it about the burn? Maybe it's metabolites. Maybe it's a lactic acid. But a lot of people said that's stupid and that's like anecdotal and it doesn't work. And some other people said, well, maybe it does. Some of those people went and did studies and now there are multiple papers showing mechanistic description of 
the various metabolites activating hypertrophy pathways. Well, it would be real stupid back in the day to say, no, 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 this is stupid. Here's another one. Oh, and this one's really good. I remember reading, quite sad, I remember reading in a textbook of exercise science that was published in the late 90s that the pump is just blood flowing through the muscle and has nothing to do with hypertrophy. Now we have a body of literature that links cell swelling directly to hypertrophic mechanisms and correlatively to all the other factors like metabolite sequestration and failure proximity that directly link themselves to hypertrophy. So if you're getting robust pumps, oh, sorry, we have another, at least one study now that tracked individuals. They tested individuals before the study began and they saw who gets the best pumps from training. And then they actually trained those folks for a few uh, months and it turned out that the people who got the best pumps actually also grew the most longitudinally. Whoa. So all of a sudden we look back to 1998 and that book and we look at that paragraph where he said, hey, look, the pump doesn't mean anything. And we have to ask the question, how did they know it didn't mean anything? What they should have said is, well, you know, there's no direct evidence yet. Yep. So we can't. They could have said, well, lots of people in bodybuilding say it's important, and maybe that means we need more research. Or if they thought bodybuilders were stupid, which is a fine position to have, they could have said, well, we just don't know. And that's totally fine. But they said the pump doesn't mean anything. That's, that is an assertion of reality that is itself not in evidence. You would have to have 10 studies that showed that pump actually doesn't correlate to anything, and they, it had zero. So now that book looks really stupid, all because they weren't willing to integrate anecdote into at least a suggestion of maybe this is something to study. Because yes, anecdotes happen and people are wrong, but if lots of lifters are telling you, hey, when I do this, I feel this. If they're of uh, good faith themselves, maybe they're really onto something. And that's how a lot of science develops. We get anecdotes from practical experience, practical. And then we test them, then we confirm them, then we say, okay, this for sure works, and then we move on. Yep, anecdotes are the baseline or you can say foundations of hypothesis testing, right? Because hypothesis has to come from somewhere. Once we observe something, whether it's anecdotally or from the case reports, we tend to start seeking the truth into it. And that entirely like forms an entire uh, interventional studies and later turns out to be an empirical evidence, whether it comes out to be in a favor or in terms of uh, against of that particular anecdote. So anecdotes are evidences, like obviously you cannot just toss them off, like toss them out just as a pinch of pink Himalayan art, right? It's not going to happen like that. Right. And it, it's also a bit of a distinction between different kinds of anecdotes. If you say, hey, one time I lifted and I felt like <laughs> this. So that means that's really the bottom of the barrel of anecdotes. But if someone says, listen, I train 700 bikini athletes per year, and in 90% of them, I notice this pattern, that's a little better than just one-off anecdote. That is something that really begins to interest research scientists because, you know, if that coach is acting in good faith, those clients are reporting at relatively accurately, it may very well be something going on. And yes, that data is technically anecdotal, because it's yeah. not formally controlled study, it's still observational research to a small extent. And when you have that observational research, technically speaking, every node of observational research is um, by itself uh, an anecdote. But when you sum yeah. them up together, they start forming something. So people say, well, you know, this coach has his athletes do this exercise, but that's all anecdotal. Yeah, but if it's anecdotal off of 150 people's experience, 
Absolutely, there's always a chance it's just wrong. But that chance falls a little lower every time more data is collected and more people seem to think the same way. Yep. Brilliant. I think we have beaten the evidence-based uh, practice to its depth now. And <laughs> how much time do you still have? Uh, About t- 10 minutes, probably. 10 minutes. Okay, then I think we have to come back again uh, for to ac- actually explore the topic of today's. But in any ways, like if you have 10 minutes, then I would rather love to discuss something like more uh, current recent. So on the similar tangent, because you have seen the industry changing and a lot of things have been changing as well what are the things which still fascinates you in terms of exercise science or nutrition or what are the things that you are looking out for that might be the like game changer which you would really want to be a big game changer but still the evidence is not there um i can think of at least two things that excite me considerably one is research on non-steroidal skeletal muscle anabolic substances because currently the most reliable way to hypertrophy of muscle pharmacologically is to use anabolic androgenic steroids and, and derivatives they come with tons of side effects and they suck they're just awful and they do grow muscle but they make all kinds of health problems and psychological problems everything's nice. There have been at least a few candidate substances recently some of them monoclonal antibodies seem to more directly trigger hypertrophy at the skeletal muscular level and don't interfere with a lot of other mechanisms. I'm very curious as to how those substances develop because this could give birth to a new generation of supplements or drugs or whatever you want to call them that with very low side effects help people a ton because there's kind of this cultural element of people say, well, I want to take steroids. Well, yeah, a lot of times they're illegal. A lot of times they're rightfully feared because they're very bad for your health. They have tons of side effects. But you know, you don't say, well, I don't take headache medicine because it's a drug. If you have a big headache, you take it and it works. And you say, okay, well, you like drink coffee. Caffeine is a drug. I mean, literally it's a yeah. drug. And you say, well, like, if I need to stay awake and be focused, caffeine helps. And people are like, well, doesn't it have downsides? Like, yeah, but they're manageable and they're not very intense. If we can have muscle building supplements or drugs that work a lot better than creatine and maybe comparably to anabolic steroids, but with fewer side effects, you know, an order of magnitude fewer side effects, 10 times fewer side effects. That becomes an amazing revelation because now regular people can take these substances and get much more muscular and can enhance their results in the gym. And it might not be like, okay, for people who are in their 20s and want abs, that's cool. But what about women in their 60s who are at risk for osteoporosis, who are so weak and whose cellular machinery is so degraded that they have trouble gaining muscle with just resistance training? You give them a few of these pills, they get to be what you would consider normal muscularity, and all of a sudden they're independent, they're walking around. How are you supposed to lose weight if you can barely stand out of a chair? How are you supposed to reduce your calories? Starving yourself? So now they can actually move around, and they can eat a healthier diet, and so on and so forth. The second thing, both are pharmacological, by the way, um, the second uh, thing is already happening, and that is basically future generation appetite suppressants. Or an even better way to think of them as hunger modulators. So there's um, one hunger modulator uh, called semaglutide. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. There's a trade name. There's a few trade names, but Ozempic is the most popular trade name. And this is a GLP-1 agonist. It acts on gut hormones. And it's a once-weekly injection through the skin. So it's like diabetics take insulin. It's it's administered the same way. It's almost entirely painless. 
one time a week you take the injection. It's the easiest thing in the world. And it reduces your hunger signaling in an, what I could just describe as a profound way. You just kind of forget that food's a thing you're supposed to be eating. And look, what fraction of people trying to lose fat struggle with appetite? All of them, <laughs> maybe 90 some percent or whatever. And if your appetite wasn't a problem, your chance of completing a diet would come down to like convenience and boredom. Like if you're not hungry anymore, it's really easy to be successful if you just are okay with eating a bit more like a machine than you want. And if it's super inconvenient for you to eat, you know, quote unquote diet foods, I get it, but a lot of times it can be quite convenient. So we've solved hunger as a problem. We've solved a huge impediment. And right now, Ozempic or semaglutide is the trade, uh, the, the re regular drug's name, the generic name, it is very, very powerful. It has very few side effects, but that's from a, the, what's called a third generation of GLP-1 agonists. There is already a fourth generation that's passed human trials. It's even more powerful as an appetite suppressor. If your uh, viewers want to Google terzapatide, it already has better outcome results than semaglutide. And semaglutide had unbelievable outcomes in its studies. To put this in perspective, there's a study with terzapatide that went just a bit longer than a year. And I think the average group lost something like um, 15 or 17 kilos of body fat. And both groups got the same advice, general diet advice. The group that didn't get the terzapatide just lost like a two kilos just because they tried to eat a little better. And then the group that got the trisapatide lost 17 kilos. That's an unbelievable result. And the side effects are basically like some people that made them a little sick and nauseous. Here's another funny yeah. thing about these drugs. If you try to overeat your calories, you get really sick. And if you don't, then you feel fine. So it almost, the drug guides your behavior into something better. You, it's even difficult to out-eat the drug. Because if you say, well, I'm taking the drug, but I don't care. I'm going to go have pizza. No, you're not. Because after a slice, you're going to be like, oh, I don't feel that good. You'll have an apple instead and a piece of lean chicken. And then you're like, okay, I feel great. So because genomics is, uh, is developing at an accelerating pace, drug discovery is developing at an accelerating pace, here's some evidence to that effect. There are a variety of companies that now have AI algorithms that can do the protein folding simulation with a high degree of accuracy without testing. Palash, that is such a big deal because they can yeah. come up with candidate drugs a thousand times faster than regular. And by the time they actually make, make a drug and go through trials, they already have a, a really high probability that it's going to work because they know exactly how the protein is going to be shaped before they can test it against other proteins and say, well, we actually can demonstrate a higher binding affinity in theory. And people say, well, what about in practice? Well, we've simulated the entire macromolecule. It's got, it's probably going to work. And now all of a sudden you have, if, if the fourth generation of GLP-1 agonists comes out maybe next year, what happens in 2027 or 2029? I mean, we might be in a situation where if you want a diet to lose fat, you go to your doctor, you say, I'm really struggling. And he goes, oh, yeah, here's this pill. It's it's three things combined. You take it, and all of a sudden you're like, I want to go on a diet. I don't want to eat any more food. That would be unbelievable, and that could help tons and tons of people. And right now, drugs like semaglutide are super expensive. But as it goes through mass production yeah. and as the patent system opens up and competitor companies can make the drug, it's, you know, making any drug specifically is a, it's made of like 
carbons and nitrogens. Shit is damn near free. So, you know, drugs for blood pressure, like lisinopril, that used to be cost a fortune when they were first made 40 years ago, are now almost free. Like, I don't even understand how the companies making them make money. The the thing costs like a a (laughs) a penny per pill. And that's going to be the case with these drugs. So I honestly think that that is super, super exciting research. And it doesn't cancel out the fitness industry. People think it will cancel it out. Yeah, it might contract the industry to some extent, getting rid of mostly charlatans. But if you're a fitness practitioner and evidence-based, what these drugs do if your clients take them is improve their results. And let me ask you this. If you're a coach and you have a client who's struggling with motivation, you've trained her for three months. Let's just say she has bad genetics and really trouble sticking to her diet. Training with, with you three months, you being her diet coach, she gets not so good results. She's going to quit. She's probably going to quit. But if she has access to these advanced, you know, future pharmacological interventions, she might lose 10 kilos in three months of fat. And you go, hey, do you want to quit? She goes, quit. I love this. I'm never going to stop. She still comes to train with you a few times a week. You still guide her and diet. Everything works better. And it's something that can honestly just be great for everyone. That's what I'm looking forward to most in, in the current research landscape. Brilliant. And on similar note, I want to share my experience because I work for IBM and I have been deployed to this project called Watson AI Healthcare. I, I believe you must have heard about the Watson, right? No, everyone have heard, right? Sure. So we deployed a mini AI algorithm for University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Research Institute. And they are pioneer of comparative effectiveness research in terms of surgery, right? So what that AI did, it compared five types of surgery for us, like uh, if a surgery protocol is there, like let's suppose uh, heart heart surgery, and there are five, five types of uh, surgery exist, then doctors don't even have to see there. That AI will compare all those five types of surgery based on the, like mapping with the symptoms of the patient, and it will recommend which surgery out of those five will work the best for this specific uh, patient. And it got so much backlash because it made the uh, jobs of junior doctors redundant. Because this, this a junior doctor is supposed to do that, right? They, they collect their symptoms and then they uh, research the literature. And they're like, okay, this surgery should be like, maybe work better for this particular person. But AI is doing that. And it is doing at a pace of like, you cannot even imagine. So it made a lot of doctors job, uh, you can say the assistant's job redundant. But for patient's view, the moment that particular patient is coming in, he is getting the best kind of surgery. Like, imagine that. Like, this, like, healthcare is for patients. It's not for doctors at the end of the day. Yeah, we are. Yes. A lot, a lot of assistants are losing their job, but the amount of successful surgeries we are having after we deployed that AI, it's almost like the improvement of 60%. And if we, are we willing to neglect neglect that sixty percent? Like nobody is going to neglect that sixty percent statistically difference, right? Yes. I mean, well, that that would be actually like bordering on like a hate crime if you were to suppress that research. I mean, that's like exactly. you know, almost like unintentional genocide. Um, that's absolutely a great point. Here's another thing: people think that people just lose jobs straightforwardly, and technology replaces them. There are many, many ways to demonstrate that that is actually a very false hypothesis. But one that I'll just illustrate now, doctors have, there's a problem, especially in the United States. Doctors spend a tiny, tiny fraction of their time with patients one-on-one, with individual patients. 
the way it works is you spend your time doing things that are more lucrative. So you want to minimize patient time, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes, three minutes per patient. Great. You make more money. The thing is, if AI does most of the difficult work of diagnosis, the doctor now makes the same amount of money, but can spend more time with patients because the AI can tell you whatever, but the patient still needs to be talked to, explained yeah. what's going on, heard and comforted and explained what the future is, guided on life advice to say, well, look, I have cancer. Thank you for the surgery. It healed me. I don't want to get cancer again. What can I do? This AI is not going to answer that question directly, not in a very convincing way anyway. So then that doctor can spend more time with patients. So for a long time, AI actually makes everyone in the profession on average, just better at their job, and it makes everyone's job more pleasant. AI typically does things we don't want to have to do ourselves. Like another thing people didn't ask is those junior doctors that look through countless medical records and countless charts and analyze the x-rays to try to come up with the best uh, solution to the problem. Is that fun work? I don't know. It's not particularly yeah. fun. Maybe the AI can do a lot of that work and you can double check the AI, which they do anyway. And the AI all of a sudden does tons of work for you and it leverages your ability to be a doctor. And just, just make sure people don't think I'm missing this point. If AI eventually gets so good, we don't need doctors anymore. We live in a miracle world where yes. disease is gone. And, oh, my God, I would pay unbelievable amounts of money for that world to get here sooner than later. As a matter of fact, Mark Zuckerberg has committed essentially the vast majority of his fortune to trying to end all disease by like 2050 or 2040 or something. I believe him. And people say, well, what are all the doctors going to do for work? Anything else. Anything and is. doctors are smart people. And also, most doctors have been working for a while, have a crap load of money saved up anyway. They could just retire and live the good life. But a world with no disease, that problem versus the problem of, okay, oh, so here's two worlds. One, tons of disease, lots of doctors have jobs. World one. World two, no more disease. Doctors are out of work. Look, with all the money we spend <laughs> on curing disease, we could just say, hey, if you got a medical degree, sorry. Here's $50,000 per year for the rest of your life. You just do whatever the fuck you want. And then we're shutting down all the medical schools so nobody can get a medical degree again because AI's got this. That would be unbelievable. That's so much better than having people do jobs that really shouldn't be there to begin with. 100%. Like, that's what Tikori is all about, right? Patient-centric outcome research when we go about. So that's what they are saying. Like, because human needs are human at the end of the day. And why... Let let AI do the heavy lifting for you, right? You you do the more important part. Become a senior doctor instead of becoming a junior doctor, right? Yes. <laughs> like yes. use that extra extra time and become a senior doctor. Like uh, it's it's for your own fortune. Why are you like looking out in the haywire valley? So 100%. that's a brilliant way to put it. So with that in mind, I think uh, we can obviously uh, bid adieu to this podcast, and I'll be like uh, chasing you forward. Because we entirely left the entire discussion which we initially planned. So I'll be chasing you down again. But on that similar note, where can people find you and find your work, Dr. Mike? Yes, thank you so much. So by the way, just send me an email as soon as you get a chance. And we'll schedule another podcast sure. in, no problem. And then uh, I'm best found on YouTube actually nowadays. It's just Google my name, throw it on YouTube or Renaissance Periodization YouTube. We're coming out with tons and tons and tons of videos all the time, four or five videos a week, all of them educational. Some of them, 
somewhat entertaining if you like my shitty humor. And it's just all about learning all the time, about nutrition, about training, about everything exercise science. Our goal on the YouTube channel is to take folks who want to learn how to coach themselves better and coach other people better and give them as much information as possible. That's where to find us. And if you're curious about how to buy our books or how to use our apps, all of that is linked through the YouTube. So YouTube's worth that. Brilliant. So listeners will find all these details in the show notes and then we can get hold of Dr. Mike yet another time so that we can finally start our topic of the day. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mike, for coming on to the show and then I will see you next time. Awesome. Thank you, Palash. Take care. Hello, listeners. I hope you would have liked this episode of the podcast series. And if you did, please feel free to share it with your friends, families, and your colleagues so that they can also get benefit from the science-based discussion that we just had. With that in mind, this podcast, along with all the episodes, is now available on all the major platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, along with the audiovisual media YouTube. So... With that in mind, let me bid adieu for this time and I will see you in the next episode.